Hello and welcome to another edition of the ASCO Spectacular for 2023 here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. We're on the home stretch. We have done so much content and we have loved every minute of it. But we are coming up to the end of our series. I mean, ASCO has been done for a few days now, so just, just say that we're lagging behind. But we have another excellent episode looking at the best and brightest in the breast cancer space, specifically the metastatic breast cancer space. And Josh, we have a few interesting studies to talk about today. We do. And breast is always the pioneering and at the forefront of really exciting and pivotal trials that change management frequently from even a year ago. Things have drastically shifted in most spaces, actually. So I'm going to start talking about the SONIA trial. So the SONIA trial is interesting and asks some pivotal questions, which we'll wait to the end, but we might not have the answer for. So this was a nationwide randomized phase three trial comparing the use of a CDK4-6 inhibitor as a first or second line treatment in patients with advanced breast cancer. They had to be hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative. So the background of this is we know CDK4-6s, so that's pelbocyclib, ribocyclib, abemocyclib, are really good agents. And there's some differences in the trial makeup and thus pelbocyclib lost out in that sphere. But again, PFS is pretty similar. We know that the absolute improvements or better outcomes in the first line than the second line in the initial studies. But there was minimal crossover between the groups, which raised the questions, can we delay a CDK4-6 inhibitor to the second line? So this trial design was a one-to-one hormone receptor positive breast cancer where you either started on the combination treatment of an AI, so an aromatase inhibitor and CDK4-6, or an AI alone in the first line setting and then switched to a CDK4-6 in the second line setting if they progressed. Any CDK4-6 inhibitor could have been used and you had to have follow-up of at least three months. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival two, meaning you wanted to see how long you controlled the disease with two lines of therapy as opposed to one. And essentially, it's a not, it's sort of a pseudo non-inferiority study, really. Secondary endpoints, quality of life, overall survival, cost ratio, right? These are expensive drugs still. So baseline characteristics was reflecting a slightly older population, which we would expect. And pelbocyclib was used in 91% at the time. I guess there's questions with overall survival given the Ploma study. With the results, the median duration of CDK4-6 inhibitor use was 24.6 months in the first line and 8.1 months in the second line. The progression-free survival, which is the first line, or not an endpoint, was 24.7 months in the CDK arm and 17.1 months in the AI alone arm, with a hazard ratio of 0.59 reflective of the prior pivotal trials, and this was significant. Significant. Progression-free survival 2, which is the primary endpoint, showed a first-line CDK4-6 of 31 months versus second-line CDK4-6 of 26.8 months, with a hazard ratio of 0.98 and was not statistically significant. What does that mean? So whether you have it as a first-line treatment or a second-line treatment, the actual outcomes are very very similar progression-free survival too, meaning how do you actually strategize and sequence these patients? Next, we look at overall survival, showed 45.9 months in the first-line treatment of CDK4-6 and 53.7 months in the second-line treatment of CDK4-6, 
while the hazard ratio was 0.98, again, not statistically significant, meaning there was no difference in having CDKs in the first or second line. I feel I'm repeating myself. I, I hope you're understanding that there's not a lot of difference whether you do it first or second line. Looking at the subgroup analysis, there was nothing really statistically significant and ribocyclib had similar effects, but there was a very small number. So there wasn't enough data for abemocyclib either. Quality of life at present, the publications are pending and safety profile, you know, more grade three adverse events when CDK46 was used in the first line, purely because they use CDK46 for a longer period of time. So Michael, in summary, what is this telling us? This is a whirlwind, but what is this actually telling us? So first line CDK46, no improved progression-free survival, progression-free survival two, overall survival, no quality of life versus first or second line. There was increased toxicity in the first line. And if you look at the toxicity of financial toxicity, it was about $200,000 per patient. The question then you have to ask is, we need some head-to-head trials looking at ribocyclib versus pelbocyclib in the first line. And that's happening in Harmonia at the moment. That's a trial that's underway. And the question that I asked, and so did the people discussing this, is when can we delay the use of a CDK46 inhibitor in the first line? I don't think we have that answer at the moment of which population we can select and what is the best second line treatment? Is it fulvestrant? Is it a CERD? You know, there's new agents coming on the market, which might also skew what you're actually going to do from a sequencing perspective. And we need more biomarkers to really assist us in our direction of which way we want to go with these trials. It's a very interesting question. And one that I've actually never sort of heard asked in clinical practice, like it's always been gospel that first line metastatic breast cancer, unless you have a contraindication, people get AI and CDK46. So it's clearly a, a, a very, someone who is very good at outside the box thinking has put this trial together. I think the fact that they allowed for any CDK46 to be enrolled in the study also raises the question about exactly how interchangeable these CDK46 agents are. And one of the issues raised is that they don't think they're as interchangeable as once thought. They all have slightly different mechanisms of action. And as you've seen, while progression-free survival and overall survival are somewhat similar, there are still nuances with these drugs. Yeah, so it will be interesting to see if anyone actually sort of drills down on this sort of data and starts prospectively comparing a single CDK46 in the first and second line. You mentioned they're they're doing head-to-head trials of CDK46s, which will be very interesting to see and one that something that we probably didn't think we'd get a few years ago. Absolutely not. But given the data for pelvocyclib wasn't as beneficial, it's going to be, I don't know which company is doing the Harmonia trial, but it's either Ribo to confirm superiority or it's Pelbo to try and claw back some of that market share. Oh, that's a hell of a gamble, but you do love to see it. I do. <laughs> Josh, I might move us right along to something that is really becoming almost ubiquitous in breast cancer more than other tumors but it's making its presence known in other tumor streams as well and that is antibody drug conjugates and this is tropics o2 a study of sasituzumab govatecan this is a final overall survival update 
from the Phase 3 Tropics O2 study. Sasituzumab govotecan or SG is already approved in the triple negative breast cancer space on the basis of the ASCENT trial, but now we're seeing if it can also be used in later lines in the hormone receptor positive space, and this is the Tropics O2 trial. So in terms of the background, the optimal sequencing of therapy following endocrine uh, endocrine therapy resistance is unclear. And as Josh just mentioned, even the pillar of first-line treatment with AI and ZDK46 is starting to be shaken a little bit. So nothing is certain in breast cancer these days. Chemos after endocrine therapy resistance is generally not a good option. Patients tend to be more heavily pre-treated, they tend to be more frail and more susceptible to side effects. And the efficacy of things like capecitabine, abraxane, carboplatin-based regimens, it tends to be fairly, fairly limited with a high rate of toxicity. So of course we need novel therapies. Sasituzumab govotecan is a first-in-class ADC or antibody drug conjugate targeting TROP2 with a chemotherapy payload, which is the deruxtecan component. The trial randomized patients one-to-one to, one, one to, one to receive sasituzumab govotecan versus the treatment of physician's choice. Inclusion criteria were that patients had to have at least one line of endocrine therapy, a taxane, and a CDK46 in any setting. They had to have at least two, but not more than four lines of chemo. So we're sort of in that region of treatment where we're still looking for some efficacy. We're not scraping the bottom of the barrel. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoint was overall survival, overall response rate, duration of response, and many, many others. The primary median PFS has already been presented. Median PFS in this study is 5.5 versus 4 months with a hazard ratio of 0.66. So in terms of progression, not great, but it is statistically significant. This is the final update for this study, and it does show that sasituzumab govotecan is pretty much better to varying degrees across the board. So in terms of the final median progression-free survival, the sasituzumab govotecan arm had a median PFS of 5.5 months versus 4 months in the physician's choice arm with a hazard ratio of 0.65. The 18-month PFS rate was 14.4% versus 4.7%. In terms of the forest plot, the sasituzumab arm demonstrated consistent benefit across all predefined subgroups. In terms of overall survival, a modest but significant benefit of 14.5 months versus 11.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.79, which equates to a 21% reduction in the risk of death. There were a higher proportion of patients alive at 12, 18, and 24 months in the SG arm. This was consistent across predefined subgroups. In terms of the overall response rate, this was again higher in the SG arm, 58% versus 38% with higher rates of clinical benefit for six months or more, favouring the sasituzumab govotecan arm. The median duration of response was 8.1 versus 5.6 months, and the safety profile demonstrated no new safety signals. We know that neutropenia, diarrhoea, they're both issues with sasituzumab govotecan, but this did not demonstrate anything particularly new. So in terms, Josh, of what we can take away from tropian O2, there is now a final nicely wrapped up body of evidence that demonstrates that sasituzumab govotecan demonstrates durable efficacy versus the physician's choice options with improved PFS and OS among patients with pre-treated endocrine resistant hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. So I guess the one question 
from this study, Josh, is whether we can start using sasituzumab, govitecan in earlier lines. Now, the sweet spot for it, I'm guessing, is probably after immediately after the development of endocrine resistance with AI or fulvestrin and CDK4-6, we can probably say it is demonstrably better than the cytotoxic chemotherapy options available. I would agree with that synopsis. And you're right. Where do you fit this in? It's definitely an interesting drug. Other interesting things is that it's irrespective of TROP2 expression. So the question is, why do you get good response when you've got low TROP2? I don't know. These are sort of unknowns when it comes to this particular drug. But a good option for hormone receptor positive breast cancer, which really has CDK4-6 chemo or trials. I might finish off our metastatic breast cancer bonanza with an, Please in, do. an interesting trial of which I knew very little about. And I learned something. I always learn something. So that's, you know, irrespective. But it was a phase two study looking at HER3 DXD in patients with metastatic breast cancer. So what is HER3 DXD? It's part trimumab. Deruxtecan, so another sort of her derivative antibody drug conjugate. Michael already explained all the exciting stuff from ADCs. The background is her three overexpression is associated with disease progression in many solid tumors, and it promotes tumor genesis, and it also forms heterodimers with other receptor tyrosine kinase and might be a mechanism of resistance in the ADC space. So the question that they were asking when I was reading through this is, will HER3 ADC actually work? You know, will it treat patients with HER2 positive breast cancer? Will it treat patients with HER2 negative breast cancer? Well, let's find out. So this trial was three parts, part A, part B, and part Z, or Z, depending on which side of the world you live on. Part A was HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. They were treated with patrimumab deruxtecan. And then activity after that, activity of HER3 expression was assessed, and they defined it into three categories, low, medium, or high, and hormone receptor positive expression. Part B was an expansion cohort, and there were three selected populations based on a combination of HER3 and ER expression. And part Z was a HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer post trastuzumab deruxtecan. So that's a second line HER2 agent or third line HER2 agent now. Primary outcome was objective response rate and the six-month progression-free survival of a single agent PDXD in a HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. The secondary outcome was assessing safety and tolerability of pertuzumab deruxtecan in HER2-negative and HER2-positive and duration of response, progression-free survival, clinical benefit rate, etc., etc. Inclusion criteria, you could have triple negative, hormone receptor positive, and also HER2 positive. In the hormone receptor positive space, less than two lines of chemotherapy, and you must have had a CDK4-6 prior. And those that are hormone receptor negative, so triple negative space, could have up to three lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. Patients were generally pretty well distributed throughout the arms, and what I found is that 60% of patients in this trial had at least three lines of treatment, 40% had one to two prior lines, and 90% had had chemotherapy. The tumor characteristics were sort of spread between the hormone high, medium, and low in the ER space, and also the HER3 high, medium, and low. Outcomes, this is the interesting. So treatment duration was about five to two months. 15% of patients needed treatment reduction, and objective response rate was 35% 
overall. In the HER3 high, it was 33%. In the HER3 low, it was 46%. And the HER3 negative, it was 50%. But again, that's low numbers. From a combined benefit rate, it was 35% in total. And there was 40% HER3 in high, 53.8% in HER3 low, and 50% in HER3 negative. Again, low numbers. And what they found, and I'll break it down a little bit more, the objective response rate in the hormone receptor positive space was 37.5%, and the hormone, the triple negative space was 18.2%. The combined benefit rate was 50% in the in the ER positive space and 18.2% in the triple negative space. And duration of response was 50% in both arms, which is exciting. In the HER3 space, you saw 60% objective response rate in the ER positive and 20% in the triple negative space. And these numbers don't matter as much as what they're trying to tell us. So what they're saying is that in the hormone receptor positive, the hormone receptor negative, and the triple negative space, you are seeing response rates irrespective of the HER3 expression. It's exciting because if it works in the triple negative space, we might have another treatment option. If it works in the hormone receptor positive space, it might have ongoing options as well. The safety profile was actually quite good. Nausea, fatigue, and diarrhea were the main side effects and very few grade three or grade four. So as a conclusion to this specific trial, the numbers are a bit confusing, but I think the summary is this. There was clinical activity observed across a broad range of HER3 membrane expressions in heavily pretreated hormone receptor positive and triple negative metastatic breast cancer spaces. The salty tot HER3 had an objective response rate of 30% to a single dose of a trimumab druxtecan irrespective of hormone receptor status, and the Icarus Breast 01 again saw a similar objective response of 29%, 29% irrespective of HER3 expression. So the analysis here is that we have a new antibody drug conjugate that works irrespective of HER3 expression, works in the triple negative space, the hormone receptor positive space, and might even work in the HER2 positive space. So this supports potential entry of patrimumab druxacan as a therapeutic paradigm across metastatic breast cancer, multiple subtypes. What I know is that the Part, T, part B trial is currently expanding, and the Part B, for those that might have forgot, there was those with combination of HER3 expression and ER expression. So that's exciting and they're stratifying according to HER3 expression. And then the part Z, which is the HER2 positive, is enrolling patients irrespective of their HER3 status. So if we look four or five years or even two or three years down the track with this trial, there is potentially another paradigm shifting treatment option, not only in breast, but if there's HER3 expression on other tumor types, then maybe we can also translate this drug to other cancer streams. And you might be like, Josh, the triple negative breast cancer space, you know, 20% objective response rate, maybe 40% combined sort of benefit, right? But that, that's huge in a triple negative breast cancer sphere, especially after having three lines of treatment. Most of what I was always taught is that when you have chemotherapy, later lines of therapy, it's about a 10% chance of working irrespective of what the chemotherapy agent is. So it's an exciting trial. 
and I think might be a paradigm shifting trial in a couple of years. It's still very early to say though. So I want to hold it with bated breaths with the total population of 60, but I just want it to be positive. And then I want it to work in gastric cancers and, you know, pancreatic cancers and all the other cancers, which we don't have a lot of options for. I do believe that HER3 is showing signs of efficacy in lung cancer as well. So it may be one of these universal treatments that we can sort of pull out and expect to have some response. But as you say, an exciting new paradigm, early stages, baby steps and small numbers um, in uh, this in this phase two study, but still very, very exciting stuff. I feel bad for leaving out uh, lung cancer, but I assure you we all care about lung cancer. And speaking of lung cancer, tomorrow on our ASCO update, we're talking about metastatic lung cancer so come back what a surprise (laughs) definitely weren't leading up to that not at all so we will see you then bye thank you for listening to oncology for the inquisitive mind you'll find previous episodes on our website along with weekly posts resources and links to our twitter and linkedin pages check it out at inquisitiveonc.com that's inquisitiveonc.com (laughs) 